0: Really quick, before we get this episode started, I just wanted to take the time to say thank you to each and every one of you who have listened, downloaded, subscribed. I've been doing this podcast since October and you guys amaze me. So as of March, 2021, I've hit a milestone of over 5,000 downloads. Thank you for listening. Second milestone that I hit this month, which I can't even believe I hit it. The Jury Room Podcast has been played in all 50 states. I can't believe it. So. Before we got into this episode of Jim Jones and the People's Temple, I just wanted to take the time to say thank you. I wouldn't be here without you guys, and I appreciate you listening and sharing with your friends and family, and just thank you. On to the episode. We are precious, every single one of us. We are magnificent human beings. Who have been given an almighty gift. The ability to create our own lives without any limits. Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the Earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Are you looking for a miracle? Let me welcome you to Jonestown on November 19th 1978 Hyacinth Thrash, a woman in her late 70s, hid under her bed in Guyana, South America. The Alabama-born woman had been living in a clearing in the Guyana jungle known as Jonestown. For some time now, ever since her prophet, Jim Jones, had led his devout followers there. Thrash was one of the early followers of Jones. She met the charismatic preacher when he was performing healings in Indianapolis. He was easy to fall for. A white Christian philanthropist who fought racial injustices in a city that was deeply segregated. Thrash, who was black was living in Indianapolis when the city actively supported the KKK in the 1920s to see a white man preach about integration and equality was remarkable. He seemed bold, brave, and kind, a giver. Jones even started a soup kitchen and had a clothing giveaway. He put coal in black folks' bins and gave them shoes and things, always willing to help somebody. And I was willing to go along with him because at the time he was really doing good. Thrash and her sister Zippy sold their home for $35,000 and gave the money to Jones. Then they followed him to California and onward to Guyana. By 1978, Thrash was beginning to see through the cracks. The liberal-minded preacher she had fallen for had transformed into a sadistic cult leader, and she was tired of it. On that late November day, she heard the sound of gunshots echoing from the tangles of the long-limbed trees in the jungle. She was scared. When Jones called for his followers, all of them to gather in the main pavilion, she had a bad feeling. She didn't want to go. Her sister went ahead, but Thrash chose to hide. Jones guards went from room to room, bed to bed, looking for stragglers, making sure everyone was right where they were supposed to be that no one was left behind thrash though remained undetected the lights were off and she was small enough to cradle her body near the wall beneath the bed the guards didn't see her thrash waited for her sister to return from the meeting she never came thrash assumed It was just running long. So she crept into her bed, pulled up the covers and went to sleep. It was a strikingly quiet night. So she slept soundly until morning. When she awoke, the other beds in the small cramped cabin were still empty. Her sister wasn't there. She made her way outside, confused. Still emerging from the thick fog of sleep, she figured everyone must have gone to breakfast. Once outside though, she nearly stumbled over 15 dead bodies. She didn't know there were nearly 900 others just waiting to be found. Thrash spent the remainder of the day and that night alone among the dead. She had to grapple with the death of her sister and some of her closest friends. While coming to terms with what she was seeing, it wasn't just adults. It was children too, babies. She saw them limp and lifeless in the dirt. Her heart broke a thousand times over as she sat among this sea of corpses it's enough to make you scream your lungs out thinking of those babies dead. She told reporters in 1995, the nightmare thrash lived through that day is unimaginable. The photographs alone are shocking. The sheer number of corpse is hard to grasp. Even after the third or fourth examination, Masses of bodies piled together like dominoes. People of all ages, races, backgrounds, all of whom were seeking a better life when they found hope in a man named Jim Jones, are blanketing the ground in death. To think of thrash alive among them is a horror beyond the scope of imagination. She was among a handful of survivors, but that day across those acres and acres of land, she saw no one else living. She screamed into the cruel quiet of the morning, the stench of death floating through the humid jungle air. Oh God, she recalled shouting. They came and they killed them all. And was the only one alive, Thrash's sister first saw Jones on a TV broadcast in the late 1950s and was enchanted right away. She encouraged thrash to check him out. As they looked into his piercing black eyes on the television screen, enthralled in his sweet words of harmony, healing, and happiness. They knew only one thing. They had to meet this man, Jim Jones, and see what he was all about. Maybe, just maybe, he could change their lives forever. Jim Jones was born in Crete, Indiana in 1931, but moved with his family to the small town of Lynn, when he was the toddler. He spent his formative years living in a rundown shack with no plumbing. He was a child of the great depression. His parents were James Thurman Jones, a veteran of world war I. And Lynetta Putman. James was left disabled in the war and unable to work. He spent hours glued to the family radio and had little interest in fathering his son. The only thing that he did seem to care about was the KKK, who he supported vehemently. Jones was closest with his mother. Lynetta worked as a waitress and a factory worker, but she was one of the few college-educated women in the rural town of Lynn, Indiana. While she was not at all religious, she did suffer from deeply seated paranoia that she fed to her son from a young age. According to Jeff Gwynn, author of The Road to Jonestown, Jones's paranoia is actually rooted in his childhood, where he had a mother who believed that she was reincarnated through many lives. And that in a vision, it was revealed to her that she would give birth to the greatest man who ever lived. So here he's hearing from the time he can understand words, you are something special, you have special powers. Then his mother would constantly harp about all the outsiders who were against them, who were holding her down, who are holding their family down. By the time he is a public figure himself, he's already from the time he was a child, accepted the fact that he is being stood up and attacked by enemies everywhere. Dinner was spent listening to Lynetta's rants about the meaning of life. She taught her son that no one would ever help him. That if he wanted to survive in life, he needed to learn to be self-sufficient. Jones had freedom to pretty much do anything he wanted. His parents were hardly attentive to him. Lynetta, because she was tied up at work for long hours. James, because he simply didn't care. Jones spent hours wandering his little town. On one occasion, he stumbled upon a Pentecostal congregation. The Gospel Tabernacle. The congregation practiced spiritual healing and Jones was fixated by the healing miracles he saw there. He began obsessively reading about religious and dreamed about becoming a preacher in an FBI tape transcribed by the Jonestown Institute. Jones remembered because I was never accepted or didn't feel accepted. I joined a Pentecostal church, the most extreme Pentecostal church, the oneness, because they were the most despised. They were the rejects of the community. I found immediate acceptance, and I must say, in all honest, about as much love as I could interpret love at home. Lynetta had taught her son to love nature and animals. She felt that to love animals was to maintain a connection with the spirits of the wilderness. Jones practically collected pets as a child. He had chickens, cats, dogs, and even snakes. He crammed them into pens in the family barn. While his mother worked and his father was sucked into the radio, the pets provided Jones some of his only company. They also supplied an active audience for his new passion, preaching. Jones took to standing on the barn's creaky loft where he would look down at his family of animals and preach to them. He scattered flowers around the barn and lit candles in preparation for his sermons. Eventually he expanded his audience to a slew of neighborhood kids who would gather in the barn to hear this strange child speak in many ways. This was the future preacher's first church. He regularly threw spiritual healings for animals, where he would perform interspecies blood transfusions that he claimed were scientific. Other times, he would hold funerals for any pets that passed away. According to alternative considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple, a research project sponsored by the special collections of library and information access at San Diego State University, some of the dead pets were killed by Jones himself in the hours before the funeral. Contrary to the violent end many of his pets met, young Jones was devoted to love. Jones was drawn to outsiders, losers people, and even animals that he felt were neglected or mistreated. He had a lonely childhood and likely saw pieces of himself within them. He was even known to nurture plants that he felt pity for. If it was a living creature, it deserved love and attention. In an FBI tape, Jones laments that the first time I felt guilt When a little dog died i wanted to commit suicide but i had still some little dogs and cats in life that had me alone to take care of them and now for a quick break hello and welcome to gamers watch i'm here with sean hello and i'm here with harry hello Now, this is a very loosely based Xbox-themed podcast, and more than likely it's just going to devolve into an unlistenable mess by probably around episode four. Myself and Sean have known each other for about 15 years, and we've been described by some people as... The two most negative people I've ever met in my life, and we really hope that will come across to you all. It's a a badge of honour, really. So we want to say thank you for tuning in, and we hope you continue to listen. And this is Gamers Watch. Now back to the show of course jones was known to lie about his childhood he often bragged that his mother was part cherokee which as it turned out was entirely false it's hard to know what a truth might be and what a lie if it came from jones's mouth but one thing's for certain jones was drawn to the innocent to the vulnerable And the first time he saw something delicate broke, whether a dog by accident or a cat on purpose, he was affected deeply. It altered the course of his life. By the time he was a teenager, Jones had religious tunnel vision. While other boys were playing sports or beginning to date, Jones was preaching on street corners. He claimed to possess a special wisdom and knowledge that he was obliged by God to share with the world. He preached in black and white neighborhoods alike, speaking of brotherhood and unity to anyone who would listen. He gave the poor or downtrodden special attention. He felt he could sympathize with their plight because he had pains of his own soon he made friends with the only black man in town and invited him to come to the house in the FBI recordings Jones remembers I had early developed a sensitivity for the problems of blacks too, probably feeling as an outcast I brought the only black young man in the town home to visit my dad, to visit my home. And my dad said that he could not come in. And I said, then I shan't and I didn't see my father for many years. In 1945, following the incident with his friend, Jones and his mother left his father and moved to Richmond, Indiana. There. Jones dived headfirst into his studies, eager to learn all about the world. It was at school that he was introduced to powerful historical figures and became interested in how a person can come from little and gain a lot. He voraciously read the teachings of Karl Marx, Joseph Stalin, and Adolf Hitler. His perception of the world, and of his own place within it, was shaped by these readings, as well as his mother's praise for him, her adamance that Jones was someone special. Jones worked part-time at the local hospital, and it was there that he met Marceline Baldwin, a young nursing student who was drawn to Jones' devotion towards patients. Jones gave the sick special attention, charming them with his charismatic speeches. Baldwin viewed Jones as a man of the world. He cared deeply about social issues and treated everyone he met with kindness. The couple married a year after Jones graduated high school, which he did early with honors. The early years of marriage were dark. Jones was a college student, his confidence and his ego had grown. He had a keen desire for power, but his insecurities were his greatest weakness. Terrified of being abandoned. He was possessive of his new wife and angered if she ever spent time with someone else. Baldwin was wary of the shockingly jealous side of her new husband, but she believed that marriage was a lifelong commitment. So she was determined to make it work at school. Jones was learning more about the world and the more he learned, the more he struggled with his faith. How could his beloved God allow for poverty, racism, and genocide. For a few years, he denounced God completely, unable to reconcile his faith with the painful realities of the world. Whatever Jones believed was the only thing to believe. He told his wife that if he ever caught her praying, he would kill himself. If Jones said there was no God, there was no God. In 1951 Jones, now 20 became interested in communism. He attended meetings of the communist party USA, even bringing his mother with him on occasion. This was in the height of the cold war when communists were considered enemies of the state and were heavily investigated by the FBI. After one meeting, an FBI member harassed Lynetta in front of her coworkers, humiliating her. Jones, deeply angered by the incident, decided he needed to do something big to just demonstrate his devotion to communism and his resentment towards the U.S. government. In an FBI tape, Jones says... I decided where can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was infiltrate the church. Jones began his education into becoming a pastor and was soon working as a student pastor at the Somerset Methodist Church in a lower class white neighborhood in Indianapolis. He truly did agree with the teachings of Jesus Christ considering himself a believer and a doubter at the same time. Regardless of his faith, though was more happy to preach the teachings of Jesus, particular of helping the poor and loving thy neighbor. In his spare time, Jones attended services at black churches and invited the people he met there to attend secret services in Jones' own home. After only a few years, Jones was preaching for large crowds at Pentecostal meetings. He spoke of healings and his belief in miracles, drawing in anyone who needed to believe in something, to believe that their hopes could come to fruition, that their pains could be healed. Motivated by his success and recognizing his unique ability to entrance total strangers, he left the Methodist Church and started a church of his own, which he called the People's Temple. And now, for a quick break. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Jury Room Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed the bonus content that we put out with the Crime Time Nerds, and a huge shout out to them. I had a lot of fun with them recording that episode and and going through everything. So, thanks for listening. I appreciate each and every single one of you taking the time out to listen to my podcast. I've got a couple of missing person cases that I want to talk about today. The first one is Christine Maxine Whitaker. Christina went missing from Hannibal, Missouri on November 13th, 2009. Christina went with friends to the Rookies Sports Bar in the 600 block of Broadway. She was asked to leave after she became drunk and began harassing other bar patrons. Christina asked several different people for a ride. Now, she became upset when no one would give her a ride and left on foot alone at 11.45 p.m. Her cell phone was found lying on the ground on South 7th Street, several blocks away. Christina's mother believed her mental illness may have played a role in her disappearance. She described her daughter as childlike and naive and said that psychiatric medicine she took made her susceptible to manipulation. Christina was diagnosed and taking medication for her bipolar disorder. There have been reported sightings of her in Peoria, Illinois area since her disappearance. Christina has a warrant out for her arrest. She has been arrested for driving on a revoked license before her disappearance. And she missed the court date on December 18th, 2009. Her family doesn't believe she left on her own accord and has no history of such behavior. If you have any information regarding Christina's disappearance or you know of her whereabouts, please call the Hannibal, Missouri Police Department at 573-221-0987. That's 573-221-0987. Case number is 2009-30080. Some descriptives of her. Like I said, she went missing from Hannibal, Missouri on November 13th, 2009. She was 21 at the time of her disappearance, and she'd be 32 now. She's between 5'5 and 5'6, 120 to 130 pounds, red hair, and brown eyes. If anyone out there has seen or heard from Christina Maxine Whitaker... Please take the time to call the Hannibal, Missouri Police Department at 573-221-0987. Another missing person that I want to bring attention to, her name is Kimberly Rose Abercrombie. Kimberly went missing from Brooksville, Kentucky on June 13, 2013. She left her home stating she would return later and has not been seen or heard from since. Her car was recovered later the same day at the park and pool at Johnsonville along Kentucky 9 and was searched by Kentucky State Police. At the time of her disappearance, Kimberly was 23 years old. She would now be 31. She is 5'6" weighs 110 pounds. She has brown hair that was cut into a pixie cut and brown eyes. Kimberly has several tattoos. She has a full back tattoo of a fairy, Chinese lettering on the left side of her abdomen, the name Zane Austin on her left foot, a butterfly on her left ankle and a teal-colored cervical cancer ribbon on her left side. If you have any information regarding Kimberly's disappearance, or you know of her whereabouts, please call the Kentucky State Police Dry Ridge Post at 859-428-1212. If anybody out there has any information on either one of these cases, please reach out to the Missouri Police Department, reach out to the Kentucky State Police, help bring these two ladies home. Now, recently I've been seeing a lot of posts on social media about sexual assault and rape and how uncomfortable it is for for women. To go out in public, you know, and I feel like that is an extremely just fucked up situation. And I feel like we need to bring more awareness and do better with society as a whole. And stop making up excuses. Now, if you have a horror story or if you just want. Talk to your abuser or submit a story anonymously, you can send me an email at juryroompodcast at gmail.com. I'd be glad to feature your story. We need to bring awareness to this. We need to bring that hard hitting, you know, facts to light. And we need to stop making excuses about this. So if you have a story or you want me to feature your story or if you want to come on and tell me your story, room podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to have you on. We can talk about it and and just tell your story. And I just wanna say I'm sorry that, that that anything like that even goes on anywhere nobody should have to walk out into public and, and be in fear for their lives or for their safety with that being said again thank you this this month has been it's been a good month uh i have an upcoming episodes i'm gonna be doing uh casey anthony next i believe and I know there's a lot of people who feel a certain way about this case. Uh, it's going to be a two-part episode, so I'm really excited about that. Tell me what you think. Send me an email. I'll read some of your guys' comments in the episode, and, and uh, we'll go from there. So send me an email, podcast at gmail.com. Tell me what you think of Casey Anthony and the trial and, and the whole story. I'm also excited to announce that starting every other week, so not on an episode week, I will be doing a jury room aftermath where I'll bring on a guest and we will talk about the previous episode. So I'm super excited to announce that next week for the very first jury room aftermath I will be featuring a gentleman by the name of Jem Evans, and he is one of the hosts of the Film Rage podcast. The guy is a riot. I really enjoyed sitting down and talking with him, and I can't wait for you guys to hear that. Other than that, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, subscribe, follow. Leave a review. Let me know how I'm doing. Send me an email, juryroompodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you guys. Good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. I'm here for all of it. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll get you back to Jim Jones and the People's Temple. In the beginning, Jones' church was committed to helping the needy. Even with limited funding, it established a soup kitchen. Jones and his wife adopted a black child, a Korean child, and gave birth to their first biological son. Their family represented to Jones' flock. Jones' commitment to a peaceful world, free of racism or division. This was the late 1950s. Jones and his wife were the first white parents to adopt a black child in the state of Indiana. During services, Jones performed miracle healings that were published about in newspapers, drawing in big crowds of desperate, sickly people. His church grew fast. According to Gwen, Jim Jones was a tremendous performer Instinctively, he understood the things that he would need to do in front of a crowd, not just to get their attention, but to hold it and be remembered by them. He taught himself and then taught a few followers how to assist him. He would concoct being able to summon cancers from people's bodies, which were actually rotten chicken parts that he would have planted earlier. Even the small number of followers who understand this was all a ruse convinced themselves that it was necessary for Jones to trick people at first in order to bring them into the church. Gwen explains, they tell themselves Jim is doing what he has to do to bring people in for the greater good because at the same time he is doing these terrible things. He's making things up. He's tricking people. He is also out there working for integration, for civil rights, for women's rights. As his followers grew, so did his ego. Jones felt invincible. He published an ad in a Chicago paper for the most spiritual healing ministry in the land today. The pamphlet claimed that Jones could make The blind see, the deaf hear. At one time, he even faked his own death. Before resurrecting himself on stage, audiences went nuts. Jones was quickly addicted to the control he had, the power. He started sleeping with members of his flock, barely trying to hide it from his poor wife. Sex was another way for him to exert control and get people to stay close to him, to worship him, to follow his lead without question. He had a strategy when it came to convincing new members to join the church and it wasn't all rotten chicken guts. He was after desperate people because he knew that someone seriously down on their luck in need of a miracle will be the most likely to blindly follow the promise of hope. He took his flock on bus tours of the American West, where he would stop in city after city to attract new followers. He invited the sick and the poor to big auditoriums where buffets of food would be waiting for them along with physicians to check out blood pressure and perform diabetes checks. There were others available to help people apply for welfare and social security. Finally, Jones would ask everyone to take a seat. A band would perform music before Jones stepped onto the stage to perform a healing. Wynn explains how this whole event would draw people in so you get entertainment but more than that you get hope and so it can be any wonder that at at every one of these stops there are always some people who want to get on the bus and go with jim jones and the people's temple he understood psychology and he took full advantage through all of his recruiting and spectacle, Jones never stopped giving back. He threw himself into fighting for civil rights. His commitment to good and to unity was noticed by the local government in Indianapolis. He was soon invited to be the head of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission, a job he was thrilled to take on. In addition, to his work as a church leader his strong controversial beliefs however drew widespread criticism Jones told the local news that he was receiving death threats and was regularly harassed on the streets none of these claims were ever founded but Jones stepped down from his new position just months after it began During this time Jones became paranoid of an upcoming nuclear attack, whether fueled by the widespread fears of the cold war, his mother's rantings, or Jones own warped perception of the world. It was enough to scare Jones into leaving Indianapolis. He decided to take his congregation somewhere where they could be safer in search of the perfect paradise for his flock. And now for a quick break. Every week, something is going to make us rage. Join us every Wednesday and Feel feel the rage. Now, back to the show. Jones traveled to Hawaii and Brazil over the course of two years. It was during this time that he first set foot in Guyana. He was drawn to the small country's socialist doctrines right away. And the seeds were planted for the future move with his congregation in 1964 jones convinced his followers to move with him to mendocino county california he had read in esquire the county was a safe place to live in the event of a nuclear attack about 80 followers sold their houses and gave Jones the money to cover the cost of the journey. In California, the church continued to grow. Soon, it expanded into several congregations with the San Francisco based headquarters. Jones began a coveted membership program that was the key to establishing fiercely loyal followers and the beginning of the church's transformation into a cult. In the beginning, Payment for membership was optional, but the donations were publicly announced. So there was a mounting social pressure to open wallets. Jones also made it clear that the amount you donated was directly correlated to your commitment to the church. So if you gave very little, you must care very little. Soon, payment was no longer voluntary. At a minimum, a person was required to give 25% of their income to the church. Jones gave special praise and attention to those who chose to live at the people's temple facilities, handing over their personal property and savings. Jones was a big believer in communal living, calling it the spiritual ideal because it kept people away from the sinful influence of the destructive materialistic outside world with his most devout followers isolated from regular society jones was able to convince them that the only safe place was the people's temple no one on the outside could be trusted the world was an enemy New members had to undergo an intense initiation, a practice that Jones hoped would make joining the congregation that much more desirable. It was competitive, exclusive, an honor that had to be earned. Not only that, but after going through initiation, members were far more committed to the church and to Jones members received a place to sleep and a $2 allowance in exchange for joining the church. But they were required to relinquish any affiliations with biological family members. Jones explained that they were part of a new family now and no longer needed the influence of sinners or people outside of the church. If a person argued or refuse to adhere to these strict and often heartbreaking new rules. Jones outed them as a person of weakness who suffered from a lack of faith. These people would be punished by the rest of the community. Punishments included public beatings, especially of children. Parents were required to publicly beat their children for misbehaving. Husband and wives were also expected to punish each other. By making his own members responsible for his punishment, Jones made it impossible for members to publicly turn against him. They also believed that the punishment must be just. One member Deborah Layton explained that as father's influence increased, The members became unwitting pawns in his quest for more and more personal power. The deeper a person got into the church, the more they were expected to sacrifice in order to prove their devotion. The members that were completely devoted, who never questioned Jones or succumbed to punishment, lived a life of harmony and peace. This motivated new members to keep quiet and focus on believing. The teachings were becoming more intense and bizarre. Jones claimed he was devoted to wiping out racism in America by whatever means necessary, even if it meant mass murder or suicide. Jones began telling his followers that he was the reincarnation of Jesus and that he had holy visions of the end of the world and extermination of the black race. If his followers wanted to survive, they needed to stick with Jones. Members were forced to accept Jones authority without question. By the time he was preaching about the inevitable end of the world, most of his flock had already given him their life savings they were in too deep to leave or to admit they may have made a grave mistake in trusting him as Jones ego grew along with his control over his followers he became violent threatening and downright cruel to his devotees Leighton lamented that as Jones power grew we endured more and more threats and suffered tighter and tighter restrictions. In 1968, Jones applied for affiliation with the Disciples of Christ, which he was granted. The affiliation came with tax exemptions and made the People's Temple an officially recognized religious organization Jones sent 30,000 newsletters across the nation month after month and began radio broadcasting his sermons. By 1973, the People's Temple had two and a half thousand members. As Jones became more sucked into his new power and esteem, he threw himself into his sexual affairs more than ever. His wife suffered from back problems that kept her from engaging in sex herself. So Jones justified in his plentiful sexual encounters. He told his wife and his followers that sex with other women was nothing personal. It was necessary. It made him feel better, stronger, more energized. And he needs that feeling in order to devote himself to the cause. He occasionally slept with male members too, claiming that he used sex to remind them that they weren't the ones in power, that he has the control. In addition to sex, Jones also turned to drugs. He took amphetamines to stay awake longer. Then he took sleeping pills when it was time to go to sleep. He started wearing his signature sunglasses at this time. He told his followers that the glasses protected them, that to look directly into his eyes would burn you up because his vision was so powerful. In reality, he wore the glasses because his eyes had turned bright red from all the drugs he was using. As Jones congregation grew by the thousands. So, did his drug fueled paranoia. The People's Temple was gaining recognition from the press, and it wasn't good. According to the History Channel, negative reports began to surface about the man referred to as Father by his followers. Former members described being forced to give up their belongings, homes, and even custody of their children. They told of being subjected to beatings and said Jones staged faked cancer healings. The FBI began investigating the group and feeling threatened. Jones decided it was time to leave America once and for all. In 1974, he obtained permission from the government of Guyana to build a commune there. in an opening in the jungle, 140 miles from Georgetown. It was a completely isolated place, totally estranged from the rest of the world. If Jones wanted to continue his practices and make them more extreme, this was the place to do it. A small group of Jones' most devout followers traveled to Guyana to begin the construction. By 1977, it was move-in ready. Jones convinced over 1,000 of his followers to follow him to this new land, promising a life of peace and unity in South American paradise, where everyone would be completely safe from the evil outside world. Upon arrival, Jones confiscated passports and personal possessions, including medications, ensuring that no one could leave the commune. He even armed the isolated road through the jungle with watchful guards. Anyone who tried to escape would succumb to a deadly fate. It was apparent right away that this place was no paradise. Members had left everything behind to get here. And it was nothing like they had expected it to be. Instead of safe and comfortable living. They were crammed into tiny, dirty cabins. They were required to work long days in the fields, and if they dared question Jones' authority, they were punished. Jones made sure that his members didn't sleep, a strategy meant to keep them from acting out. If a person is overworked and overtired, they cannot think hard enough to question anything and won't have the energy to fight back even if they did they were forced to attend long meetings late into the night in order to stay awake on some occasions jones had his followers participate in suicide drills he said that they would have to commit mass suicide if jones failed to create world peace family members of the followers grew concerned when they weren't hearing from their relatives. They published reports that they believed their loved ones were brainwashed and being tormented by Jim Jones. In November 1978, Leo Ryan, a US representative from California, decided to go check out the situation himself. When Jones heard that a US representative would be visiting, he became overwhelmed with rage and paranoia. He commanded his followers to say only good words about the compound and not to reveal any of the abuse they were suffering. If they did, they would face severe punishment. Ryan brought news reporters Photographers, and even some concerned relatives of cult members. They had no idea what to expect of their destination, but were haunted by the stories of brainwashing and abuse they had been told. They arrived on November 17th and were surprised to receive a warm welcome from the compound. Jones even threw a big dinner and put on a concert for them. Ryan interviewed as many of the followers as he could and they each told him that they were happy with their new life in paradise. He told them that anyone who wanted to leave could come with him. Only 15 people agreed to this which shows just how devoted Jones's followers really were or how afraid A day after his arrival, Ryan and his group got ready to leave Jonestown. And now, for a quick break. Hey everyone, you're invited to Harpy Harpy Hour. Hour! I'm Tracy. I'm Liz. I'm Steph. We are the Harpies, and Harpy Hour is our new podcast featuring ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. Were you ever suspicious that pigeons were secretly spying on you? How do you know who to eat first if you survive a shipwreck? Do problematic musicals send you into an uncontrollable rage? If so, then Harpy Hour might be your new favorite podcast. That's H-A-R-P-Y for Harpy and new episodes air every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on all social media at HarpyHourPod. And check us out on HarpyHourPodcast.com. Okay, bye! Now, back to the show. While waiting for his plane on a nearby jungle airstrip, they were ambushed. Gunmen sent by Jim Jones fired bullets at the unsuspecting group. Ryan and three others were shot in the carnage. Ryan died. Gwen describes the event. Jones had determined the night before that he couldn't let Ryan and a few people from the temple who'd wanted to defect get away. His thought was if you let a few people go, then more and more are going to want to go. If you let this congressman go, more congressmen will come. So he did what he thought he had to do. He had them killed. The not so distant sound of gunfire sent Thrash under her bed for safety. Soon armed guards were going from cabin to cabin gathering followers and telling them to meet in the main pavilion jones had something important to share with them with over 900 followers gathered and listening jones explained that all hope was lost the congressman's visit represented that even this isolated south american jungle could not provide safety for any of them that there is no way to truly hide from the evil of the outside world. It was time to engage in mass suicide. According to Jones, there was no other alternative. The followers were handed Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. One cup for them and one for their children. Armed guards gathered around the group to ensure that no one could escape. Gwynne explains, Jones left his followers no choice. Even those who protested, even if they didn't voluntarily drink the punch, they'd be held down and injected. He was the general. He made the decision that his soldiers would die to make a statement. He was not going to give them the option of saying no. In a haunting recording of the final event, Jones tells his followers that it's the end. We are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. We can't go back. They won't leave us alone. They are now going back to tell more lies, which means more congressmen. And there's no way, no way we can survive. Anybody, anyone that has any dissenting opinion, please speak. Yes, you can have an opportunity, but if the children are left, we are going to have them butchered. Some of his followers beg for their lives, suggesting alternatives to this mass suicide. One woman, the only to continuously argue with Jones, suggests fleeting to Russia, but Jones has already made up his mind. We had some value, Jones says, now we don't have any value. Well, I don't see it like that. Says the woman. I mean, I feel like as long as there's life, there's hope. That's my faith. The woman later pleads with Jones for the life of the children. Joan tells her that death is the only way they'll find peace. They argue for minutes and minutes more. It's awful to listen to the sound of panic in her voice as she tries so hard to save her life, the lives of the children, other followers shut her down. Tell her to listen to the prophet, respect him. They are so sucked in that killing their children doesn't seem unthinkable. On the contrary, it's a necessary service. Jones convinces his followers that if they don't commit this act, government officials will come in and massacre their children themselves. At the end of the tape is the horrifying sound of children weeping and whimpering as their parents feed them poison at the demand of Jones. I call on you to quit exciting your children when they're all doing is going to quiet rest. Finally, Jones concludes, we didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. His 900 remaining followers and their children drop like dominoes. Jones holds a gun to his head and pulls the trigger. In total, there were 33 survivors of the terrifying event. Thrash was one of them, alone among the wreckage, left to grapple with her own understanding of how this could have happened, how she could have been sucked in, along with so many others. How it could have all gone so horribly, horribly wrong. The people's temple was founded on the virtues of love, unity and peace. It was a place where miracles could be real. Hope could be possible. It was all too easy to get sucked in. To latch on to this idea that life doesn't have to be painful. That better days exist. He was nice at first thrash once told the New York times, any one of us down on their luck in need of hope of love, of friendship could have been sucked right in just like thrash was on that fateful day in 1957 when her sister turned on the TV. Thanks for listening and remember. You never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Well, what a horrific, horrific case of narcissism to the fullest. At this time, I would like to take a moment of silence for every victim of this piece of shit. Join me in a moment of silence. Now, again, thanks for making this podcast what it is. Here's to many more downloads, listens, subscribes. I I can't do it without you guys. I'll include my Buy Me A Coffee link in the description below if you would like to support the show. Also... I've got stickers now. I put a picture of them up on Twitter. If you guys want some stickers, send me an email at jerryroompodcast at gmail.com. And tell me where you guys want me to send them at. I already have a list of, of names that are growing. So if I run out this time, don't worry, I will keep you on the list for next time. But I do have stickers. As, as Just as a token, you know, of, of gratitude, of, of thank you for listening. I am on Patreon. I'm working on getting some extra Patreon content as well as releasing episodes early. So that way you can support the show that way. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Jim Jones and the Jonestown, Ma- Jonestown Massacre. Cults are definitely a fascinating, fascinating thing to talk about. It's disgusting what this human being did to to way too many people. But let me know if I should do another cult episode or any episode, really. I do have a case link below, missing person below, feedback, you name it. I've got links for everything. But thanks for listening. Stay safe. This has been The Jury Room.